the firefighters as a whole are receiving better training now, although it, there needs to be a lot more emphasis on these kind of, the, the percentage of calls that are ending up in the, in the, the wildland urban interface category are increasing in several areas. And so with that, the training emphasis needs to as well. From Los Angeles, this is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me today for another edition of Code 3. This is the show that gives you all the information on a firefighting topic you need in about 20 minutes. Let's get started. Now that the wildland fire season lasts pretty much all year long, and homes continue to be built further from city centers, the focus is turning to homes in the wildland-urban interface. Fires that threaten homes along the edge of cities and towns have turned some metro departments into wildland companies as well, whether they like it or not. It's not always a comfortable fit for crews that usually wear turnouts and expect to have a charged hose line. Now they don the yellow shirts and they work without water digging fire breaks. My guest today has been watching the situation and has some observations about how the transition is going and how to make it better. Claire Frank retired after 30 years in the fire service. She was the state of California's first and only female chief of fire protection. And she served as fire chief at the Milpitas, California Fire Department. She also found time to earn a law degree and her bar card. And Claire Frank joins me now. Welcome to Code 3. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. So what's your analysis of Metro Fire Department's abilities to deal with interface fires? Are they ready? Are they funded? Uh, so, some are. Some aren't. And, you know, as as fire changes and it, it, these um, mega fires are coming into action, then, you know, we need to be more prepared than we have been in the past. So uh, some departments are more used to it than others. Well, yeah, for instance, where we are here in Southern California, LA fire departments are used to the idea that they're going to be working the wildland interface. Absolutely. But there, I'm sure, are some some interface adjacent departments that just uh, aren't ready for that sort of thing yet. Yeah, I agree. I think I think it's getting everyone's attention these last few years. So people are departments who haven't had to pay attention in the past are their eyes are open, but there needs to be you know more than awareness. We have to have some action steps to to get everyone ready for what's what's still coming. Well, speaking of action steps, you have several that you've pointed out in an article on FireRescue1.com. You pointed out that quick suppression should be a primary goal for any wildland fire. Now, that sounds obvious. Why do you feel that you need to give that warning? Well, quick suppression has, you know, it's part of the discussion right now because are we over-suppressing? 
And is that taking away something from the land? The land needs to burn. You know, we moved into its area. So when we suppress the fires, we're kind of messing with Mother Nature's plan. We don't, we don't stop the rain from falling where it naturally wants to fall as an emergency measure. So we're doing that with fires. So quick suppression can be um, controversial when you're looking at the, the greater land management and resource management needs. At the same time, and one of the points I make is using quick suppression when it's triple degree temperatures and low humidities and you're in the middle of peak fire season, you, you, ha- you have to do that because we're protecting homes and people in these areas. And then during less dangerous conditions, we can get into fuel management and thinning, mechanical thinning and prescribed burns and slow moving fires that are, that are getting the low level fuels and the latter fuels. So uh, the quick suppression is key, but it's in the context of all of that. So fuels management, this one can be difficult because in some places with high fire risk like California and Arizona, fire season now exists all year. So how do we deal with burning off the understory without making the solution as bad as the problem? Yeah, that's a great question because there's been a lot of, there's always a lot of press given to escape prescribed burns. But there are prescriptive factors. If you're burning within prescription and you adequately staff those burns, then then you're probably in pretty good shape. A lot of it comes with it's not adequately staffed or it's not, you know, that you're you're bumping up against prescription parameters. The wind's picking up, and you know, once you have something planned, a lot of people don't want to change course. But again, mother Mother Nature's in charge on these. So what other problems do prescribed burns come with? So a couple points. Yes, we have a year-round fire capabilities in Southern California and in Northern California and in other parts of the country and in other parts of the world. But there is always, we still have a peak season. So, you know, if you, if you say fire management during peak season is kind of off limits, you can still find pockets and and time periods where you're you're listening to the land. So that's part of it. And then a lot of what happens with prescribed burn and fuel management is it gets controversial for other policy reasons, we'll say, maybe political. People don't people don't like smoke in the air. You know, I have I have asthma, lifetime firefighter. I don't like smoke in the air, but I'd rather have the kind of smoke that comes with a managed burn than some of these um, choking fires i i'm i live on the side of the sierras where calder and dixie kind of met in terms of their smoke and we had some of the worst air in the world so a little bit of smoke versus the worst air in the world i'll take it and there's also some issues with disturbing habitats when you do mechanical fuel thinning and so there's you know there's there's a there's always a fight and we have to decide do we put politics aside and put put the fire problem out front? Well, I'm a firefighter, so I say yes. But not everyone agrees with that. Well, yeah, and then there's manual or mechanical fuel reduction. That's damned hard work. It's not, glam- it's <laughs> not glamorous at all. <laughs> and you have to get the government to pay for it. 
Yeah, it is. It is hard work. Yeah, I worked for Cal Fire, and the the program has changed a little bit. But the camp program using the inmates, it's just the. I again, you, you run into controversy on uh, the inmate program, but in my experience, it was a phenomenal, phenomenal. It is a phenomenal program, and they do fuel reduction during the, the time periods when they're not turned into elite type one hand crew firefighters and they get a lot out of it and the state gets a lot out of it and the taxpayers get a lot out of it. So I, I think of it as a, a, a real win, win program. And that's, that's part of how you do it. It's not the, the solution for every, every pocket of fuels reduction, but it's, it, it's a really good program that, that helps, address the fuel management issues. Now, defensive space has been a thing for years, but you go a step further and you want to see homes hardened against fire. Will residents get it, do you think, and will they go for the extra expense? Uh, well, history has told us no. Hardened, hardened homes, the, the concept has been around for a while. I, I still think the majority of the population and the way that fires work, more majority of the population thinks it's not going to happen in their in their yard, in their front yard, in their backyard. We'll watch the news and we'll see it happen to other neighborhoods. One of the things that we're seeing is if you look at the fire history maps, the fire prone areas are burning again and again. So when you, you take an area cl- close to your neck of the woods, Malibu Canyons, they're going to go up every three to seven years. And so I think in areas like that, the people are saying, ah, well, maybe, maybe hardening is, is the way to go. But in uh, further outreaches where you're not getting repeat fire activity in um, short time frames, I don't know if they'll pay attention to it. You know, it's, it's kind of the same argument in structure fires as people wanting to sprinkler or not sprinkler their homes. The, the choices a lot of people make is, well, I'd rather have growy faucets than a sprinkler system. And, you know, there's a budget, so I'm going to pick this. Yeah, they, they make the choice based on the immediate conditions. So if there's no fire today... It's a lot easier to say, uh, it's probably not going to happen. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. It's kind of like a lottery. You know, when, when the number finally comes up, it's too late. And the thing is, I wonder how insurance companies will deal with this. Will they insist on, at some point, insist on homes being more fire resistant? Yeah, I think the insurance companies are a, a key player in this. I mean, we, we've seen it with, for example, the flood prone zones and FEMA coming in and insurance companies coming in to provide relief because we, we, we go on this cycle, tragedy of fire, and then the news media kind of shifts gears and says, okay, these residents, we need to help them rebuild. And that's not always the right answer. And they, the flood zone areas are the ones that, that really got it right first saying, yeah, this is not a rebuildable area. You can, you can do it at your own risk. Like we have 
a different capability with wildland fire. We can harden the homes. You can rebuild and you can harden the homes and they will withstand a wildfire. So we have a leg up with this particular kind of disaster. It's just, uh, as you said so perfectly, it's a a choice that's often made too late or in the wrong moment. Yeah. Now, this week was the 4th of July. In the PR wars, who's winning? The people who understand that fire... Who's winning? The people who understand that firework bans are a safety decision or those who want to say, come on, it's only once a year. <laughs> uh, the, the, the fireworks are winning. You know, it's... <laughs> that, that, <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. That would be the third choice. It's hard because people who have dealt with the wildland fire affecting their lives are more likely to understand it. But you've got people who just, I guess they feel like they're willing to roll the dice for their neighbors or for themselves. Yeah, I think that's that's part of the the defect in human nature. And we, we are a wonderful species and we are a flawed species. And when it when it comes to the human fire problem, I often see more flaws than 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 wonder. In all seriousness, though, in the PR situation, do you think firefighters are winning that fight yet? Where they're they're being taken seriously, or are they still the enemy at this point? Yeah, I think I think the interesting thing about it is that. It, it's timing. You you kind of referred to it earlier. When when it's Fourth Fourth of July, or you know, I believe very heavily in American pride and patriotism, and I understand wanting to honor that that message. I also think that there's a way to honor it without creating the amount of risk that we seem to still be creating in in different pockets. California's done a pretty good job of getting a lot of people on board with safe and sane and creating fire prevention messages in the PR world. But when it, when it goes to things like, for example, when you have these stands that sell fireworks in pretty, pretty hazardous areas and people buy them and, and they can buy them and take them to the hazardous areas, even if hazardous areas don't sell them. Or worse, the places that sell them where they're illegal to use, but they're not illegal to buy. Correct. A hundred percent correct. Yeah. And a lot of it, you know, there's, let's say some of it goes to you help fund a boys and girls program. And so everyone's in favor of that and everyone's in favor of patriotism. But, you know, when you, when you try to bring these ordinances in that restrict it, it's on a budget cycle which it's probably raining when you're arguing for this as a fire chief. So again, there's an immediacy during fire season and that's not when the budget decisions are being made. Well, yeah, people are short-sighted and they're looking out the window at the rain and going, but it won't be a problem. Exactly. Of course, that rain is, is just generating more fuel anyway. 100%. 
Well, that's the irony of the weather. I mean, when it rains, it turns everything green, but that stuff isn't going to stay green into the late summer and early fall. But at the same time, if we don't have the rain to make the stuff green at all, then it's dry more of the year. Yeah. I, again, it's it's nature's nature's way of saying that nature is going to have its way with us. <laughs> Yeah, there was a guy who was a baseball fan who said, you got to remember, nature bats last. Yeah, right? That's perfect. Yeah. Where do we stand on interface problems? I mean, we're still building, and we're still creating new interface by building further and further into the back country and making it the front country. Right. So where do we stand on on their construction techniques and and the defensible space arguments? Are people getting it or not? Well, I think a lot of people are are getting it, and I think a lot of people aren't. I keep kind of saying that same thing. In Tahoe, when the Calder fire moved through Tahoe, the firefighters were able to make a stop because of the fuel breaks that were in place and because people had done a good job with defensible space in in many of the areas surrounding Tahoe. So they, you, you live in a place like that, the awareness level is so high and there is also pretty good, there's almost a peer pressure, I think, because of course mm. any fires, everyone's fire these days. So yeah. I, I think in, in those kinds of areas, people get it. And a, as we expand, the, the problem is that the people who are making the decisions to allow building in these areas, those are, that's, those are local government entities. And undoubtedly, the state and feds are going to be the ones charged with, with putting out fires that go beyond a certain district. Or certain area there you know it's a collective response certainly state federal and local but with the enhanced building there's often not enhanced suppression or prevention efforts that that go with the development and so that is that's a, a way to address it is to start having the local agencies that are allowing the building at the city or county or district level to say, okay, we will fund this or we will allow this kind of development if the developer starts to fund some prevention and starts to require hardened homes and starts to uh, address fuel buildup in these areas. And if they want to keep it unmodified, well, then we, we probably shouldn't be expanding into those areas. Well, that's true. But again, that requires some foresight. <laughs> And I'm just thinking about the fact that some of these municipalities welcome the tax revenue that that these homes would generate because they're usually fairly large homes. And, you know, we've seen some fires here in Southern California in the past few weeks where they weren't a map. I mean, I can't remember what they named it, but I saw one that was not a massive fire at all. But it was right in the interface, and an entire neighborhood got wiped out. 
And so it doesn't have to be a mega fire to cause serious damage when you build right out into the interface and then just hope everything will be fine. <laughs> that's that's correct. It's uh, it's just bad bad business, bad governance. Well, hopefully some of these things will be codified so that we don't have future fires that are a major threat to a metropolitan area. Yeah, and I think the um, the firefighters as a whole, kind of circling back to your first question, are, are receiving better training now, although it, there needs to be a lot more emphasis on on these kind the the percentage of calls that are ending up in the, in the, the wildfire or wildland urban interface category are increasing in several areas. And so with that, the training emphasis needs to as well. And I'm seeing a lot of municipal departments really start to embrace it as part of their operations where they hadn't before. So that's, that's really good news. And then also seeing that the prevention side of it is so much more it's so much more cost effective, and you know, if you if you look at the cost, emotionally, financially, uh, et cetera, to to put some money into the defensible space, uh, the messaging, the PR, and and prevent some of the starts, than it is to get. If we get to quick suppression, then we've already some you know failed part of the prevention stuff in in many instances. I can only do so much, but I hope the things that we can do, we start doing. Absolutely. Claire Frank, thank you so much for talking with me on Code 3 today. It was a pleasure. Pleasure was mine, Scott. Thanks for having me. And there is more about firefighting on the Wildland Urban Interface at our website, code3podcast.com slash interface. That's code3podcast.com slash interface. Take a look. And don't forget, you can still find Code3 merch. Just go to code3podcast.com slash store. Support the show and wear our logo. Who knows, maybe someone will ask about the podcast and you can tell them about it. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. To contact us, get more information on today's show, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.